Hello, and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about topics related to running role-playing games. I'm Chris Salzman. And I'm Andy Rao. Andy, just before we got on, we had a, uh, a let's say, a, a heated but friendly conversation about medical debt in the United States of America. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we won't rehash all of that, that sort of stuff. But I did want to mention, so a friend of the podcast and a host of, co-host of the Splat book, John Corey, has, along with a few other people, um, organized a campaign to eliminate some of the medical debt for people who are in Michigan um, right now. So there is a, there's a link. We'll put it in the, um, in the show notes. You can do- donate to this cause. And the way it basically works is like when you have medical debt, eventually it sort of ends up in collections uh, of various sorts. We'll, we'll call it collections. But um, <laughs> there there's a way that you can basically just buy a large amount of that medical debt and then do what you want with it. It can be like pennies on the dollar. So they are uh, <laughs> they're trying to raise $10,000. This would allow them to basically buy a million dollars worth of worth of medical debt, and then the the plan is to just cancel it. You know, John is not going to turn around and go go after all these people. <laughs> John is going to yeah like cancel it along along with the people that he's doing this campaign with. Um, so I think it's super cool. Um, I'm going to donate to it. We wanted to just mention on the podcast if that's something that sounds interesting to you to kind of be a part of the solution. Uh, please go ahead and follow that link and uh, yeah, cancel some medical debt. So yeah, yeah, awesome. Okay, all right. So let's uh, let's go go into kind of the the podcast proper. Um, although I do think that's super important. Um, it's been a little bit since we've checked in, sort of on like what we're reading and watching. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to yeah ask you like what have you been reading lately? That's been kind of getting your GM brain going. Yeah, for sure. And I have the same question for you because I know what you've been reading and I yes. want to hear how it's been going. It was a leading question. Really. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I think our listeners could tell, but yes. Um, <laughs> I am almost done with Nona the Ninth. Oh, yeah. Which is the third book, and I believe it's called the Locked Tomb series. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a trilogy. And then the author, Tamsin Muir, I, I might be mispronouncing that. Anyway, mm-hmm. she, uh, I think, partway through the third book realized it would have to be a four book series. So. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. So the yeah. fourth book is, I don't think there's a release date out which means it's probably still a ways out, but it was originally supposed to land sometime around now. So mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, next year. Okay. Anyway, no one needs me to recount the publication history of the series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you could give the sales figures and maybe when the, the soft covers or the hardbacks came out, that'd be <laughs> that's That's right. I, the trade paper was released in October. Uh, anyway, so this is book three of a series I love. And I mean, I've read a lot of fantasy, a lot of sci-fi. I'm not going to say this is the best I've ever read, but I have rarely had as much fun reading a series of sci-fi or fantasy than reading this series. And Hmm. Chris, you've read the first book. Yeah. Yeah. So I have read Gideon the Ninth and then I got halfway into Harrow the Ninth, I believe is, is the name of it and got so lost and was so confused and I think it was in the middle of the pandemic too. So I put it down, although I have every intention of going and picking it back up sometime. Well, interestingly, so I've had Nona the Ninth. I think it's been out for about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I picked it up the week it came out. I went to my local bookstore and picked it up. And it sat on my bookshelf unread for a year. And the reason is because I knew it was going to be a challenge to read. It's a series where you know each book really takes a different angle than whatever you were expecting based on the previous book. Mm-hmm. Um, you got stuck on book two, Chris, and I. That's very understandable. It's like it's a hard book to read, and you you have to go for hundreds of pages on the trusting 
that it's going to work out and it mm-hmm. does but like it's hundreds of pages of i'm just going to hope that the author <laughs> is bringing me to a good place here so and nona the ninth is like that as well it is also very different it's different from book one and it's very different from book two as well you know i can say it is coming together but it it also took a couple hundred pages Mm, it's it's fun pages you know it's not 100 pages of boredom but yeah that was my experience so reading harrow i think the you know i think like if my life circumstances had been a little bit different i would have i would have sort of pushed through but i think yeah there is that that sense of unease i mean the 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 narrator at least in harrow is pretty unreliable i would say yeah. <laughs> that's yep. that's as much as i could gather you know and even in gideon i think there's a little bit of that that happening as well um yeah so i mean it's just it's a fascinating setting though i mean i just I, like yeah love the setting for it yeah as far as kind of game ability i mean yeah for sure my gm brain is spinning i've googled around and there's one or two kind of fan light RPGs in mm-hmm. the setting. And you can see why, because it's a setting that has this rigidly defined, you know, most of the main characters in the setting are some kind of like magic user, basically. Um, mm-hmm. They're all kind of a variant of necromancer. Yeah. It would map very easily to like, you know, oh, each of these nine types of necromancer is a character class, yes, right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and so there is, it, it, it wouldn't shock me at all if the author has some, uh, you know, RPG playing experience uh, in their blood. Yeah, but that said, it's one of those settings that is very, very cool. Maybe hard for me to imagine what I would do in it simply because the book seemed to be telling the main story that the setting was built to tell. Yeah. And so, you know, as we have discussed on numerous occasions with something like Dune, you know, incredible setting on paper, maybe a great RPG setting in practice. What are you going to do? Because its story was wrapped up in Paul Atreides and mm-hmm. the planet Dune and stuff like that. So I, I feel similar vibes here. So, I mean, I would be delighted to hear to see a Kickstarter or something for an official locked tomb RPG. But I, yeah. at the same time, I am not sure what I would do with it. Yeah, that's that's a it's an interesting point. I mean, I think I feel like we've we've shifted into a media landscape where, like, uh, it used to be that if your if your favorite comic book or whatever got a movie adaptation, it was like, oh, finally, like you are legitimate. <laughs> you know, you're legitimate you know, part of, part of culture. Um, and now it feels like, you know, it's like, we're, we're sort of like waiting for the, the role-playing game version of, of everything. Like that's, yeah. that's the marker of like, oh wow, this is really has, has some legs, but I'm with you. Like after reading, getting it, getting the ninth, I think there's a lot that would be fun there to have at the game table, but I don't know what story you would tell or like what, what adventure you would do. It has made me think about the different ways that settings from books or movies have been moved into RPGs. And I think we're about to talk about Tolkien. So mm-hmm. we can talk about <laughs> that soon or whatever but you know i mean there's been tons of literary and other settings brought into rpgs and if you take dune for example you're going to make a dune rpg and yeah i realize there's a dune rpg Mm -hmm. what do you want that game to be about like is your job to recreate in a framework of arp and rp the language of an rpg a setting in which players can go in and do whatever they want Mm -hmm. because that's like the approach that like iron crown took with the old middle earth role-playing game their clear goal in that was like we are going to translate this massive awesome world into rpg terms like what you didn't find in there was like how to tell a story that feels like tolkien or Mm -hmm. you know it didn't there wasn't talk about the themes or stuff like that on the other hand you, you we have seen a lot more like of kind of 
very theme focused games and are all about this isn't a story about you know doing anything you want in the star wars universe it's a story about being han solo yes in the star wars universe and yeah those are also i love those they do come at the cost of that expansiveness of the setting you're reading lord of the rings yes so like i'm wondering if you want to like muse on that a little bit as you tell us how your read through has been going you mentioned retelling the events of the story you know, versus like, you know, being able to tell, tell sort of a different adventure, different, you know, different story within the setting. And I've been thinking about that a lot on this read through of uh, Lord of the Rings. So um, I just gotten through, like they just got through the mines of Moria, right? Like, so Gandalf is, Gandalf is gone and now they're, they're entering Lothlorien right now that the fellowship is like so that's where i'm at in my read through the the thing that is just really striking me with this is how often they run away from problems hmm. like and run away from fights and how little fighting there is in at least at least especially in fellowship it is not their first inclination to like stay and fully eradicate all the orcs right in, in moria right it's like oh no there's there's a giant problem like we need to find a way through moria as fast as possible because like this is not not our goal. Um, and I think like a, a standard adventuring party, like the thought of like running from all of your battles is like, that's not like, you know, not yeah. how they're going to going to interact with your story at all. But like, that is the story that Tolkien is telling is like this, the story of, you know, of these adventurers, like hitting, you know, hitting a roadblock and like sneaking around or, you know, or mm-hmm. fighting for a little bit. And then as soon as they have an opening, you know, getting away. I mean, I, I don't think it's until probably later on in the story Maybe like Helmsteep might be the first time that they try to make a stand. They try to make a stand, and even then, they end up having to retreat. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not these like you know, it's not like a series of these decisive battles, which um, which might be how a lot of like D and D style um, campaigns campaigns yeah. end up going. You know, so like if I was going to do a Lord of the Rings game and I wanted it to feel like Tolkien esque, there'd be a lot of uh, a lot of like group singing, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. singing in it, right? You know, or a lot of like you know campfire scenes. Right. There's, there's quite a bit of like role-playing opportunities in the way that Tolkien tells stories and a lot less fighting, <laughs> fighting than people, people might remember, um, you know, especially if like your, your main touch point is the movies. That's interesting. I was, I was reading a published uh, D&D adventure recently, and there was a scene in it where the PCs are supposed to basically be captured by the town guards mm-hmm. and talk about a, a really common type of scene in movies and books that you can't reliably do in an RPG. Yeah. Like it, you know, every movie you've ever seen features, you know, one scene where because the plot needs to, the heroes put their guns down and surrender when they're yes. surrounded, right? But like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I mean, you can try that in an RPG, but, you know, because the players don't know that what you're doing, you, of course, they're going to assume this is just a fight we need to mm-hmm. win. So, yeah, yeah. Like there's a, um, so like when the Balrog shows up in, in Moria, right? Like there's a genuine fear you know, a fear that kind of runs through the fellowship in that moment. And like Legolas just freaks out. Like he can't handle it. Right? Yeah. You know, and like, that's, I, I don't know, like how you would, how you would telegraph that to your players of like, this thing is going to come and like, one of you is going to stay and try to fight it, but the rest of you are going to like get out as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like, there's these, you know, the, the storytelling stuff. I think like when you're, when you're telling a story in a novel, right? Like what you can, like get away with right i guess like since you don't have people playing each of the characters like you can you can have different reactions 
to stuff like that. Whereas, um, you know, the, the battle with the Balrog, it's like, okay, so you would have like one player stay and try to fight this thing, <laughs> you know, two of them try to help, but then have to leave, right? Like everybody else run away. And it's like, you, you wouldn't be able to tell that story at the table in that way. And I think that's like, that's totally okay. But it's just, it's just fascinating to me, like rereading it and being like, oh yes, of course, like this is where all D and D comes, comes from but also like not at all, right? Like, you know, it's like, yeah, just just does not translate. I've found, you know, in recent years, I have been more and more inspired by this principle that I think I first encountered it in the context of like Powered by the Apocalypse games. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. where it came from, but this idea of like playing to find out what happens yes, yeah. rather than playing to succeed as much as you can. Yeah. I find that that is a window towards something more like those that literary experience of the Balrog encounter that would be hard to have that naturally play out in a traditional D&D-esque game. Yeah. Um, but it makes a little seems a little more possible if you have added that layer of distance or whatever, I don't know what the the metaphor mm-hmm. of it is, but um yeah, between the players and, you know, or just restructured the relationship between the players of the table and the characters that they are controlling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, as I've played more and more games, I think I, I tend to, uh, I've lately been more open to the idea of like, let's find sort of the, the flaws in the character and like, yeah, kind of leaning into those, those times where it kind of doesn't go right. Cause like, that's just the more fun and interesting, mm-hmm. interesting part of the game. I mean, I think that's why I'm attracted to something like blades in the dark where, where you have a built-in trauma system, right. Of like, yeah, this was too much for you, right? And like, so now your character is changed, changed in a way that's not like a oh, you're changed because now you have um, access to level four spells, right? It's yeah. like yeah, yep. you're you're changed because like you went through something really hard, and like that's going to affect your decision making um, going forward, and even like how you can interact interact with the world. So, like one other thing I want to mention, so like rate, so where I'm at in in the Fellowship of the Rings is uh um. So like they're going into Lothlorien and like they've just told Gimli that he has to be blindfolded yeah. in order to go in. Yeah. And like if, if we're talking about stuff that you could game, like you could put at the game table, like that, that's a brilliant bit of storytelling yeah. right there. It's like the elves do not trust the dwarves. Legolas is saying like, no, like Gimli's a good one. Like, you know, he's a good one, but it's also like, but also no dwarf has ever seen, seen Lothlorien, right? So like you have the, like all this tension happening. It's all over just like, you know, can Gimli wear a blindfold or not? Right. And like you have you have Gimli's like kind of strong personality saying, like, of course, I'm not going to wear that. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, so now they're having an argument about that. And like, that is a really nice moment I think you could bring bring to the table. I could see that being as enjoyable, like a moment at the table as like any ambush by orcs. Oh, right? totally. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like, yeah, what are you going to do? Is, you know, is Gimli going to, you know, Gimli has just said, like, fine, I'm just going to turn around and go back. You know, <laughs> they've just... <laughs> And they just they've just crossed the the river. I think it's the Anduin, right? Like so, right. it's like this dangerous crossing. It's like you can't swim. Like you can't go back. It's like yeah, yeah you <laughs> you put us in a no win situation. Of course, like we have to blindfold you or like fight you. <laughs> like so, <laughs> yes. Anyway, it's great. You know, it's just like you know, Gimli. Gimli kind of makes everything interesting in that in the Fellowship. <laughs> so. I'm trying to remember that that scene in the movie is kind of funny. I think due to like camera tricks, like and you can do this in a movie, doesn't it like zoom out and they're surrounded by elves with arrows or yes, something like yeah. that? Like in a way, <laughs> yeah. like I mean, the elves are standing like four feet away. <laughs> no, it's it's like, like, yeah, but anyway, yeah. It, yeah, it looks good, uh, but it's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, um, yeah, that's that's 
I think that's good. We should maybe shift into our topic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, uh, you and I were, were um, chatting back and forth on Discord about this and we decided to sort of pause our conversation and just have, have it on air um, instead. And we were talking specifically about media and art that like is a, ends up being sort of like a fantastic failure or an interesting failure. Uh, right. So it's not, yeah. it's not like a commercial success, but it, like, something about it has just like not worked quite right, but there's still something that's interesting to it. And this came up in context of talking about um, Alien Resurrection, yeah. <laughs> a movie which I have not seen. You, uh, you, as we were chatting, you said, don't watch it, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> don't, don't take the time, time to watch it. But also you were, you were calling out a few things that you, you thought were pretty interesting about it. So like, maybe let's start there. Like, what? yeah, so give me the pitch for like, give me the pitch again for why Alien Resurrection is, is interesting and interesting failure. It was fun. You brought it up because asked about this topic. Like I really, I actually would flag this movie as a, a prime example of mm-hmm. an interesting failure. And one that I've rewatched many times, although it's not a good movie and I mm-hmm. don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I have, but I've gotten value out of the experience of like watching it and rewatching it from time to time. And, there's a podcast called The Flop House that you mm-hmm. and I both listening to listen yeah. to where they watch a movie that like is that they expect will be bad. There's this type of movie they watch that like they'll sometimes use the uh, metaphor of like it's it's frictionless. Mm-hmm. Like it goes down too easy. Yeah, there's no friction to it. There's there's nothing to like grab onto or react to. And yeah. you know, a movie that does not succeed at, at being a good movie or an enjoyable movie can have, if it has the right kind of friction, if it, if it makes me respond to it in a way that I find interesting, I, I think that is a more valuable experience to me. That is a more satisfying, if maybe not more enjoyable, it's a more satisfying experience to me than watching mm-hmm. whatever, you know, transformers four which, yeah i mean i, mean, <laughs> I was just gonna bring up transformers yeah. yeah uh you know i mean another good example of this and and i'm not going to be the five billionth person here to just talk about why the star wars prequels were terrible but i think they're i think they're good examples of interesting failures mm-hmm. i don't see anyone really saying that those are great movies or that they really succeed in most of what they're trying to do mm-hmm. i've personally have watched them many times and it it's not like they've grown on me and I now think that they're great movies, but they cause a reaction in me. They make me think they make me angry. Mm-hmm. They make me uh, ponder what could have been done better and why. And I find that more satisfying than watching, you know, like, I don't know, a blandly good show, <laughs> you know? So yeah. that's, that's what, like when you asked me about alien resurrection, that was how I thought Cause alien resurrection. It's a bad movie full of interesting decisions that don't work. Uh, or or good dis or good choices that clash with other good choices to create something that's not good Um, yeah yeah so and if you're listening i mean don't go don't watch this movie but you know if you watch if you've watched it and agree i'd like to hear from you i guess yeah is it is it the sort of thing like sometimes you watch a movie or tv show and you can kind of tell that everybody in it was like didn't believe in it right hmm. you know like they're, yeah. they're there to get the paycheck or whatever or the, the credit you know it's like that's that's fine i <laughs> i have nothing nothing against against people getting paid and doing the work that they need to do but like it, did you get that do you get that feeling watching alien resurrection that like everybody there was like oh no we are making a a terrible alien movie um 
I don't want this to be the Alien Resurrection yeah, podcast, yeah. but the thing about Alien Resurrection is it has a vision. It has a thing it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it has two things it's trying to do that that don't work together and collide in a disastrous way. But it's trying to do things like it's uh, you have a an, a somewhat artsy French director who's bringing this quirky kind of stylized and kind of uh, sexualized uh, perspective to the film mm-hmm. that's not a bad choice i mean that could be that could produce something interesting um you also have a script i think it was written by joss whedon it's a really joss whedon style script uh and with joss whedon style characters and joss whedon is not a great person but like setting mm-hmm. that aside that is a choice for a movie that could produce something good yeah. Uh, and those two things absolutely do not go together. Well, they do go together and they create something that's like just tonally all over the place. It creates clashes of tone and experience that are upsetting to see. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, it's a failure. It didn't work, but mm. it failed because people were earnestly trying to do something interesting and different yeah so it wasn't like they weren't trying to be like okay so aliens was really great like alien was good aliens was even better like let's just make make another one exactly Exactly. like that like the transformers movies right like i feel like they're they're very easy to point to because they're like you know you know what you're gonna get like you know get out of those there's not gonna be like a transformers movie where optimus prime decides to like you know quit being optimus prime and like go I don't know, in the theater, right? Like right. you're not going to get any yeah. sort of interesting take on that. Yeah. And I mean, I think there, there's a lot to be said for, for trying something like that. Like, I mean, a bit, part of me wonders like, would it have been successful if it wasn't called alien resurrection? Right? Yeah. If it was just called like, I don't know, whatever resurrection, future resurrection or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like you kind of remove, removed, um, you know, some of that from it. It's like, would that have worked? Right. I think the other thing, just, just like a side thought, like I, I'd kind of forgotten about this, like just how much, like Whedon was integrated into like nerd culture for a certain amount of time. And like, again, yeah, like not a great person, but like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just like, yeah. Like, so when you, when you brought that up, I was like, Oh, of course he was involved. Right. Of course. Right. Well, this was, this would have been fairly early. I don't remember the timeline exactly, but I think Mm -hmm. Buffy was still going at that time. So this is like kind of in that time period where that particular, Joss Whedon style of Mm -hmm. just telling a story in a kind of nerd franchise Mm -hmm. was being fleshed out, I guess. Yeah. Um, So, you know, it's interesting in that sense also just to look back at a, he, Joss Whedon, he did Avengers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that feels like kind of a kind of peak of that style of film writing. So it's interesting to go back and look at early versions, less successful attempts to find what makes that work uh, yeah so well sorry we don't yeah we can we can now move on from alien because i think like the for me it's like i i really like those things where it's like okay you were trying something maybe you weren't quite as successful but like yeah that's like good for you for trying i mean that's like that's just so much more so much more interesting and we we were talking elsewhere a few of us about like oh yeah so so someone had mentioned on, on, on discord about the noble knight the online realtor like yeah. just making a joke about like what well, wouldn't it be great if we could kind of search search their catalog by like weirdness <laughs> yeah. right like so rather than like what sold the most what's the most expensive like you know what have you like you know doing those search filters just like give me the stuff that is just like confusing 
and maybe off-putting kind of weird needed an editor whatever yeah. right because like there's something there's something to that of like you combine someone's like passion project with them also like not wanting to just recreate D like make their their fantasy heartbreaker yeah. version of D that like it can really spark like some fascinating yeah. fascinating output right and it's like oh like yeah like i think that like the world needs and wants more of that mm-hmm. um and maybe this is just like you know like we're oh we're so decadent in the the ttrpg community that like we need, we need to be constantly <laughs> yeah <laughs> constantly entertained with bizarre and unique experiences but i think like there there is something to that of just like of, of like the stretching of like what your boundaries are like what you think yes think you can do at the table that is just like i, I mean that's what i that's what i live for when i play games well, I have been thinking about this from a slightly different angle, mm-hmm. and I am always amazed when I see people having fun with something that doesn't work for me at all, like mm-hmm. on a game level. And yeah. I don't just mean that person likes Star Trek and I don't like Star Trek. So I mean, like there are games that and I, I, I did I. I will have to. I will be coy. I will choose to be coy again here. But okay. there are games, and a lot of them do stem from that, like kind of like late '80s, early through mid '90s series of games that are kind of these beautiful disaster type of games. Uh, they're trying to do something. They're taking these wild swings, and they're to a modern eye, they're a mess. There are a couple in in particular that I've looked at. I've tried to read them. I've read their rules, and I'm like this. This is very close to being like literally not playable, mm-hmm. but the game is playable because you can go online and, and people are playing it and having a blast with it. Right. Yeah. And I think there is something amazing about just built into the role playing experience. Like this is a type of activity. You're always working with like an imperfect thing that is not ever exactly what you want. And hmm. right. And you and the activity that the friction comes from taking this framework that maybe isn't doing exactly what you want and figuring out how to work with that mechanical system and to work with like the quirky flawed human beings at your table to create something that is fun and interesting. And I do think that is a recipe for like for failure as much Mm -hmm. as it is success you know i think gaming should be fun so if it's like consistently not fun you (laughs) you know stop stop doing it yeah but a couple episodes ago we talked about my star trek game that didn't go as planned i'm not going to call that a failure because that's kind of dramatic Mm -hmm. but yeah that's a sort of friction filled experience that i'm glad i had it i don't want to do it again exactly but Mm -hmm. like i'm glad i had it it was fun in the moment it was fun to be in that experience even though it was feeling a little off the rails or like it wasn't going where I quite uh, understood, but I had a lot of fun in the moment. And then I had fun reflecting on it. I mean, that's not the same thing exactly as like kind of a flawed, but interesting film or something, but it is a type of, a type of kind of social experience that has space for like those failures or like that session just was kind of a dud Mm-hmm. or this combat didn't work or i botched the rules and it's not a fatal flaw in your campaign it's just it's something that you can keep moving forward and it kind of just gets rolled into this longer term experience you're having a few things just to react from that like there is something that the splat splat book guys talk about is like how 
how like D and D is not just one thing that's handed down to us from Wizards of the Coast directly, right? Mm. Like you like in with any game system, you know, D and D is sort of easy to pick on, but um, you have sort of the written rules, the rules as written, whatever. Then you have sort of like yeah, what your players actually want to play, and then sort of what you you hack together from from all those little bits and pieces. You know, then even if you're following a published campaign, you're probably tweaking it and stuff like that. And I think there is this this mentality that I think like the publishers might the the big publishers um, might have of like oh well if we can just give you the right tools you'll be able to run this correctly and sort of buy the book right mm-hmm. so if we can just give you the right VTT we can just get you the right you know the books in your hand everybody reads them in the right way everybody has a character sheet in just the right way then everybody's experience of D and D can be standardized and exactly like how everybody else's experience of D and D is yeah. Um, and like that is, in my estimation, that would be the worst possible thing to happen <laughs> happen to mm-hmm. a game. Like you might want that if it's a board game or like a card game or something like that. You might want everybody to have that that shared experience of like this is exactly how it's played because then I can go sit down with someone else and play the exact same board game and with the same rules and all that. But like for D and D to fall into that that pattern, I think like it it would be you'd be erasing all those like failure points and that would make the game less fun. Right. For me, at least, Um, I think there might be some fun to be had with like the mastery of the system. But at that point, like just go play Baldur's Gate 3. Um, Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can you can have your simulation, you know, (laughs) have your simulation if you want it. Like I'm here for the narrative. Right. Like that's that's sort of like the 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 give and take there. Your Star Trek game, for example, I think is a fantastic example of like, let's say that had gone perfectly. Like, let's say you didn't have that the friction, you know, the friction that you felt at the table and everything like it would have been a great session, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the rules would have like, yeah, would have told you ahead of time, like, Hey, don't fall into this trap. You don't fall into the trap. And then yeah, your session goes, goes as planned. But then like, I don't know, like, would you have, you'd have, you'd have a story to tell about that session, but maybe the story to tell would not be as interesting. You wouldn't have talked about it on the podcast or would have been a throwaway. Like, yeah, Hey, like we had a good Star Trek session. Like, yeah. you know, then, then we move on, you know, versus it, it being this thing that like, we, we get a chance to dissect and talk about and like ruminate on and reflect on. And like, it just becomes part of like your whole hobby experience Yeah. at that point. Like, and I'm not saying like, go out and make a bunch of mistakes, like just, just to make mistakes <laughs> right, right, know, right. necessarily, but it's like, there, there's something to that. And I think like you mentioned like that human, human element to all this. It's like, yeah, like without that, like if it is just sort of a machine that you're like churning through, it's like, it's. I don't, yeah go go play a video game like yeah i don't know go do something else like it's it's like that's the fun part about it is all the un- unexpected yeah. stuff that happens i don't know like uh, l- allow me to make like a sports analogy real quick Ooh, if you will. Okay, I'm, re- <laughs> yeah. I'm ready <laughs> so the the thing that uh the thing that i love about baseball is like despite it being a somewhat simple game there's always new stuff happening in baseball all the time like i don't know like you can go and look like every game it seems like has something that's never happened in a baseball game huh. ever before right and like again like you can create a simulation version of baseball in a video game in which everything that can happen has to be documented and has to happen in the code and all that right and that's fun but like it's also fun to be like wow like no one's ever hit a like tried to hit a home run and like a cat jumped out of the stadium and grabbed the ball and, like it <laughs> fell like, whatever right like right. there's like a, a thousand a thousand things you can come up with <laughs> like that but there's just always new things happening and like that's that's the thing that drives us back i think to anything that has like emotional heft to it is the the chance of of new new or different things happening man lots of good thoughts there one thing that occurred to me while you were talking is that 
that ideal that we talk about on the podcast a lot that that lots of D&D GMs in particular have of playing this this pure Gygaxian original vision for D&D game mm-hmm. and you'll never play that game you, you yeah. know I won't you'll never play it there could be tremendous tremendous value in trying to work your way towards that experience and what that experience looks like in your mind, which is going to be a little different from what that pure D and D experience looks like in my mind. And you could find a lot of that, that good friction in like wrangling with what, you know, your 5e rule set to try and get to that experience. It also made me think of games like uh, Mork Borg that Mm -hmm. I think are, you know, kind of deliberately kind of incomplete. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mork Borg is like, you know, by kind of a standard set of expectations for what to find in a rule book. I mean, Morkborg is like 40% of a game, right? <laughs> yes, like, if that, yeah. And I mean, uh, I was talking to someone at uh, World for Topic Con about this. You know, if you stick to just like what's in the Morkborg rule book, you'll be, you'll have exhausted all of its content in like two game nights tops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the game doesn't want you to do that. You know, the game wants you to get in there and make some dumb stuff yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And figure out what you want your Morkborg to look like. And I don't know. Um, maybe I'm drifting away thematically from that, from where we started here. But th- this is a hobby where you can do that in a way that, you know, I, I can think of precious few other experiences that that involve this kind of constant negotiation, missteps and successes and and learning throughout and like slow movement towards the kind of experience you want to have. Yeah. And I think the for me, the really fun part is like you have this. Yeah, you're sort of like navigating and trying to find the experience that you want. And then all of a sudden a new, a new system will show up and you'll be like, huh. oh, my goodness, like I've been missing. Yeah missing something all along right like you like then it takes you off in a different direction yeah and then maybe you come back right and it's just like perhaps this is different for people who play you know five nights a week right like maybe you maybe you get into your pattern i'm thinking about like uh so tim saucer and toby um they they both just ran a um a version of strad must die tonight it's so it's a, a hack of curse of strad where you, you play in one night one night you just go in and you try to kill Strahd as quickly as possible. Right. Yeah. Like, and they, uh, they did this brilliant thing where they had an actual hourglass that they flipped oh, yeah. over. Right. So they flipped it over on the table and whenever it ran out, like Strahd would Strahd or Strahd's minions, which kind of show up and make, make things, makes things worse, worse for the players. Um, and it's just like such a brilliant thing. Like, right. Like it's not in the curse of Strahd rule book to like, go get yourself an hourglass. Right. Like, yeah. 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 And it's the sort of thing, like that could have been a failure. Like I, by all accounts, it's, it went really, really well and was super fun, but it's like such like a thing where it's like, you don't know until you try if it's going to work. Right. And like, to me, like that is the, that is always the point whenever I'm running a a game where I I figure out the thing that's going to scare me to try like in this, in the game session, it's like, yes, that is the thing that I have to try now. Like I I have to do this. Right. Cause like, I got to see if it's going to work. Right. Like, cause it's like, you just, you have to see if it's going to work. Yeah. I mean, like to me, it's like, it's so invigorating to try those things. And like, it would be very different if I was, you know, like on the payroll at Woods of the Coast. They're like, Hey, we need a new Planescape update. Like, please give us Planescape, but it also has to be, you know, broadly marketable to, <laughs> to anyone who hasn't heard of Planescape ever before. Right. Right. And it's like, well, how do you like, how do you do that when the original was probably written in, in a much different environment of just like, well, I don't know, like you've got, you've got a couple months, like write us something so we can sell it. Right. Right. Like it's, right yeah. 
Yeah. This has made me think that a temptation I often fall to is this this hope that new games and new products are going to deliver the experience that I'm looking mm-hmm. for um, to give it to me. So, you know, I'm going to take like Star Wars RPGs as an example. We're on maybe, I think the third company to have, you know, the Star Wars role-playing license mm-hmm. and more than three editions of the Star Wars role-playing game. And when a new edition and something like this lands, all the discussion that you see online and that I participate in the questions I ask centered around this, like, you know, did they get it right this time? Yes. Did they get it <laughs> yeah. better than the last one? That sort yeah. of thing. And then meanwhile, I, I like to imagine that like sitting off in the corner for the last like 25 years, someone's been running a star Wars game that they hacked into riffs or something yes, like yeah. that. Right. Like, and they're having <laughs> yeah. like the, this amazing experience that, that must have been a, disaster for like you know a year until they they got the beast under control and like and doing what they wanted it to do and you know this is a made-up group but Mm -hmm. i someone out there is doing this and like i envy that kind of experience like those people did not sit around and be like well we can't play star wars until fantasy flight releases like their Mm -hmm. new version (laughs) next year which is going to fix all the problems they're like I've got a second edition D and D player's handbook. Like we, like maybe can we star Wars this? Like, yes. you know? Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. They've got like a, a hand-drawn map of the millennium Falcon and like, they've been, like <laughs> they're slowly adding stats to it as they go, as they have arguments about like, you know, different, different parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's, I mean, and that is, you know, that is fun, right? It's like, yeah. like you said, like, yeah, it kind of all goes back to that. Like, you know, gaming should be fun. Yeah, so if you are if you're playing the equivalent of Transformers Four, you know and you're bored. You're bored by it, right? It's like, well, okay, like go find a different game or like you know try something new. Yeah, yeah. We we need a better example in the Transformers movies. Like like I saw Ant Man Two. Like, yeah. I'm sure it was good. I I have absolutely no idea mm-hmm. ex- like what happened in it or what yeah. the plot was. Like <laughs> beyond that, it had Ant Man. Like I I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened in it, but it was probably a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. So if, like, maybe if your yeah. games are like Ant-Man two, they're like fine, but, but like they produce no memorable, you know, they, there's, there's no, no friction whatsoever. Like there's no, you know, yeah. Uh, Andy, who is the, uh, what is Ant-Man's real name? Oh, <laughs> Oh, I might. Do you know? I mean, right. It's like, hey. it's, yeah, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't know. No, that's that's fine. Like, I mean, I think that's like a a great example of like how certain things can just kind of roll right off you. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Of like, I mean, I, I bet you they say it a hundred times in that movie. <laughs> yeah. <you know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's someone out there is like already composing yeah. an email to the show. By the way, uh, that's fine. Yeah. You, you you can feel free to yeah. feel free to hit send. I would love to read it. And <laughs> probably tell you like, <laughs> yes. sorry, yeah. But I mean, it's like, yeah, I think the, like the movie that I think about when this comes up is the Sleepy Hollow movie from, hmm. I mean, maybe the 2000s or so. And I yep. f- it might star Johnny Depp. I remember watching that movie and for whatever reason, I bet you it'd be different now if I watched it, but I watched that movie and then went, went about my day and 24 hours later, it was like, I haven't thought about that movie at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now I only remember it as the movie that had no effect on me. There's something very sad about that. Cause a lot of people spent a lot of time um, making that movie too. And it's just like, I don't know. I'm like, you know, and for other people, maybe that's their favorite movie ever. And like, there's, there's nothing I can say against that, <laughs> yeah. against that either. Um, Have you ever had the experience of like, 
oh, that book sounds pretty good. And then you go to Amazon, it says, like, you purchased a copy of this book <laughs> yeah. in, like, 2015. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. okay. Oh, okay, yeah, like, yes. I guess it didn't leave much of an impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, all right, well, let's, well, we uh, should, let's wrap We up should there. wrap up here. Yeah. Uh, thanks for kind of uh, following around on this meandering conversation, Chris. Uh, this yeah. was an enjoyable one. Yeah, thank you, listeners who stuck out with us. Yeah, this is something we, we wanted to talk about. And uh, yeah, I appreciate so much that you allow us to um, just take the chance to, <laughs> to have these sorts of conversation on air. And hopefully, yeah, it sparks some sparks some thoughts for you. Um, yeah, by all means, you know, reach out if you have any thoughts that you want to share with us. Uh, yeah, this is you know. this is one I would I would love to hear from you. So if yeah. you are listening and you have thoughts on this, like, uh, please drop us a note. Um, mm-hmm. What is the best way to contact us, Chris? People uh, there, do it, so I don't know how yeah. they find our info. But, <laughs> there, uh... there is a contact page, and I believe both of our email addresses are listed okay. there. You can okay. find them there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can find us on social media, too, <laughs> in various yeah. ways, too. Just look around. We're, we're, pretty, <laughs> right. we're pretty easy to find. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so please reach out. You know, uh, Please you know, share this with your friends. Uh, do all that sort of stuff. We don't, we don't really do uh, self-promotion very well, but we probably should. I think it's yeah. a good podcast. So. It's a... Uh... Yeah. Self-promotion works best when it's at like 45 minutes yes. into your show and you remember to like do a pitch for your own show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think that about does it for us. Um, yeah. So you should go listen to The Splat Book. Um, they are our sister show on the Roll For It Media Podcasting Network, John Corey and Kyle Latino. Oh, I haven't out. listened to their latest one, but mm-hmm. like the discussion in discord about it has me like i can't wait to listen yes to it. yeah you should yeah i think the, the most recent one was uh they were talking about the um so monstrous kyle latino's uh book along with the cloud curio folks funded successfully on kickstarter so they're kind of talking a little bit about some of the stuff that went into that um yeah it's a really good discussion i mean i think it's it's rare to get um honest sort of postpartum reflections on projects like that uh, about Kickstarters. Uh, so I think that is, that's something definitely to, to listen to if you're just like curious about like, Hey, what goes into doing a Kickstarter, a successful Kickstarter. And also just if you're interested about like what the sort of creative process was behind that. Lots of just like fun little tidbits um, in there too. Yeah. So go, go listen. I will not uh, do any spoilers for that. So you can go, <laughs> <laughs> go hear it. Uh, hopefully I've tantalized Andy enough <laughs> to yes. go, go listen. But um, yeah, I think that does it for us. So uh, I've been Chris Salzman. I've been Andy Rao. Remember, if your player's having fun, you're a great GM. Bye.